It's the 16th of October, 1946. Not far outside London, the well-to-do Berkshire village of Sunningdale is bathed in a gentle autumnal glow. Edenham Lodge, the stately home of Lord Dudley, has been playing host to a huge press entourage. The focus of their attention is the two high-profile guests staying with the Dudleys, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The Duke and Duchess, otherwise known as Prince Edward, the former King of England, and his American wife, Wallace Simpson, are on a visit to Britain. Any royal visit is enough to bring the national press flock in, but this is something else. This is the man who was forced to give up his throne, provoked controversy in a constitutional crisis, all to be with the woman he loved. And when that woman is still thought of by many to be a money-grabbing social climber who nearly destroyed the monarchy, and when this visit is the first time 10 long years after their illicit affair began, that woman has returned to the country, well, it's a media frenzy. Since the Duke and Duchess weren't invited to visit by the royal family, they have to stay in a private residence rather than one of the royal houses. Edenham Lodge is the perfect place to do just that. In fact, Lord and Lady Dudley have vacated the property in order to give the couple some space of their own. Either that or to make enough room for the Duchess's luggage, which had to be brought in by three army lorries. Now, having posed in the gardens for photographs and answered questions as politely as possible, the exhausted couple retire indoors to get ready for an out into London. Upstairs in her room, the Duchess chooses the jewellery she will wear for the evening. She's travelling with just a small selection of her vast collection for this trip. Small to Wallace, perhaps, but her jewellery box is still the size of a large suitcase. Inside are priceless gems, complete matching sets of sapphires, emeralds, diamonds, rubies, turquoise, topaz and onyx, as well as a diamond tiara. Lord Dudley has offered her the use of his strong room to keep the valuables safe, but for some reason the Duchess insists that the jewellery box should remain locked inside the large, solid travel chest that now sits beneath her own bed. Perhaps she prefers the convenience of having her prized jewels close to hand. After all, what could possibly go wrong inside a gated, stately home? Having chosen the items she wants to wear for her trip to London, Wallace and her maid place the jewellery box carefully back into the heavy wooden chest, lock it firmly and slide it back under the bed. With that, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor head off for their evening out, leaving their staff in the house. On their return, much later that evening, they find the household in a state of distress. Having sat downstairs with the other staff to take tea for an hour or so, the Duchess's maid went up to prepare her lady's room for their return, only to find the heavy wooden chest pulled out from beneath the bed and forced open. The jewellery box is gone. The maid is distraught and the Duke and Duchess are livid. Who would dare to pull off such an audacious robbery? How do they know where the jewels were? And how do they enter the property without being seen? It's not long before Scotland Yard is on the case and they quickly conclude it is the work of a master thief. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. 
the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. There are only a small handful of thieves capable of a robbery this brazen. And of them... An even smaller number are actually known to the police. The rest are the subjects of rumour and legend. Thieves and con men who hide in plain sight and have, as yet, evaded detection. Naturally, the Duke of Windsor demands the very best the force has to recover his wife's jewels. And with media attention already sky high, this is bound to be a case which comes under massive public scrutiny. Every success or failure will be picked over by critics on a daily basis not a job for the faint-hearted. It's no surprise then that Jack Capstick of the elite ghost squad at Scotland Yard is called upon to lead the investigation. Detective Inspector Jack Capstick has a distinguished reputation in the force and a long list of commendations to his name. Thanks to his years in the flying squad, he has one of the highest arrest records going, earning him the nickname Charlie Artful. He's one of the elite officers who has been detached from the flying squad to form Scotland Yard's newest investigative unit, the Ghost Squad. Charged with infiltrating and breaking up the gangs which had begun to proliferate towards the end of the war, they do their work using a vast network of informants, spies and snouts. Thanks to their intel, they have drawn up a long list of villains which they have been steadily working their way through, building a sizeable arrest record. One of the men on that list is an elusive, enigmatic jewel thief 
known in the stolen gem trade as Johnny the Gent. No one really knows what he looks like since he uses a series of fences and messengers to act as go-betweens. All anyone knows of him is a rather distinguished voice on the end of a phone line, which leads everyone to believe he's something of a gentleman. D.I. Capstick has been hunting Johnny the Gent for a couple of years now, ever since he first began noticing a pattern of behaviour in the high-end robberies on his case list. Though there are no clues as to who the man is, he is undoubtedly the most successful jewel thief of his generation. In 1946 alone, the value of robberies credited to Johnny the Gent from mansions and stately homes in and around London comes to a staggering total of over £100,000 more than five million pounds today. Certainly, more than Capstick could earn in several lifetimes at Scotland Yard, with bonuses. Now, temporarily detached from the ghost squad to lead this case, Capstick quickly begins his investigation. It comes as no surprise to him that there are no fingerprints to be found, nor any other trace of the villain. Nothing to give the police a clue to his identity. It's the work of a professional. It appears that the burglar struck with precision. He seems to have gained entry to the mansion via a downstairs window which had been left unlocked and was in and out in a heartbeat. Nothing else has been disturbed. Did he happen across the open window by luck? How did he know where the jewels were hidden? Or that they would be unattended for long enough to be stolen? D.I. Capstick suspects that the thief must have been well informed and was watching the property closely striking the moment the jewels were left unguarded. The detective reckons that means he must either be local or have someone on the inside. He begins his investigation by pressing his ghost squad snouts into action. While many agree that the MO is similar to other robberies attributed to Johnny the Gent, no one has been contacted by him to arrange transport or sale of any goods recently. And as expected, even those informants who vaguely know of him have never physically met him. They've only listened to the velvety voice of the gentleman thief giving instructions over the phone. While in the past, Johnny's been known to steal to order, describing a possible job to a potential buyer before carrying out the robbery on their behalf, his usual style is to sit on the hall for a while until it was safe enough to break up and sell on. But so far, no one has heard a thing. The press, meanwhile, are having a field day with the sensational story involving the Wayward Royals. Public opinion of the former king and his American wife is already polarised. Many still resent Wallace Windsor, formerly Wallace Simpson, for what they see as a manipulation of the king forcing his abdication. Some of the couple's detractors, especially in the tabloid press, go as far as to suggest that the Duke and Duchess of Windsor stole the jewels themselves. Certainly, the Duke wastes no time in contacting the insurance company and claiming that the stolen items amounted to around half a million pounds worth. This was obviously a rash claim because he later revised it to a more modest 20,000 pounds. One of the more scandalous rumors though is that the royal family commissioned the heist themselves in a bid to reclaim jewels they felt should have stayed with the crown rather than going to the Windsors. Of course, all of this speculation and scandal is only designed to sell papers. And D.I. Capstick puts no store in any of it. He's got his sights set on finding out who his master thief is and bringing him to justice. 
Undeterred by his lack of intel on the gems, Capstick throws himself into his investigation, casting his net over the local area. This is not the first theft of its kind to have happened in Sunningdale. He sets about interviewing the household staff, questioning how much any of them knew about the location of the jewels. First up is the maid, who is obviously distraught, feeling entirely responsible for the missing goods. Capstick, believing her to be innocent of any involvement, reassures her that this was the work of a very cunning criminal and there was likely little she could have done to stop him. His inquiries with the staff throw little light on the case, nor offer any clues to a potential suspect. But Capstick is convinced that the thief is local, that he can hide in plain sight in high society, and that he is highly likely to be responsible for most of the high-profile burglaries that have happened in the area over the past year. Through Capstick's interviews, there is one character who emerges that piques his interest. A rather dapper 28-year-old fellow called Leslie Holmes, who not only lives in Sunningdale, but at the time of the robbery was working on Lord Dudley's estate. Now, D.I. Capstick has made a career of sniffing out criminals, and there is something about this chap Holmes that makes his senses tingle. Despite not having any kind of criminal record, Capstick gets a feeling that there is more to him than meets the eye. Could he be the slippery gentleman thief behind all these robberies? Could he be Johnny the Gent? He certainly sounds posh enough. D.I. Capstick finds himself determined to pin these charges on the man. He knows a thief when he sees one, and just because Holmes has no record only means he hasn't been caught yet. Exactly the kind of cunning shown by Johnny the Gent. With his informant's ears close to the ground, waiting for the first sniff of the Windsor jewels on the market, D.I. Capstick sets about building a case against Leslie Holmes. But with the trail of the gems going colder by the day, Capstick runs the risk of putting all of his eggs in the wrong basket. As the case drags on, rumours abound in the press about the jewels having been smuggled back to France already. There is a brief flash of hope they'd been recovered when a passenger on an Italian aircraft was found with a suitcase full of gems. But none turned out to be from the Windsor Hall. The pressure is still on to recover the valuables, but the trail has all but gone cold, and D.I. Capstick, perhaps foolishly, is still relentlessly pursuing just the one man, Leslie Holmes. It's almost a year later, a year where precious little new evidence has emerged, when D.I. Capstick's gamble finally pays off. It turns out his instinct about Leslie Holmes being a thief was spot on. Holmes is arrested for robbery, but not by Capstick. Another team had been following him as a suspect and had finally caught their break. In court, he pleads guilty to charges of housebreaking and larceny, and is sentenced to five years in prison. He strenuously denies the theft of the Dudley estate, though. Still convinced that Holmes is the same Johnny the Gent he's been looking for, and sure that he's behind the theft of the Windsor jewels, D.I. Capstick keeps digging. Quite literally. Hi listeners, John Hopkins here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noises' new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? 
Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking conmen in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Capstick orders Holmes' garden to be dug up. He also searches his house and a well in the grounds, all to no avail. Not a single gem is found, let alone the royal collection. Refusing to give up his crusade, D.I. Capstick visits Holmes in prison in the hope that he will confess all. He does not. In fact, he flatly denies being connected to any of the robberies attributed to Johnny the Gent. It's not often that D.I. Capstick is wrong about a suspect's guilt, but on this occasion he finally has to concede that he may be. He spent far too long chasing Holmes based on nothing but instincts and circumstance. He may be a thief, but perhaps not the right thief. It's time to let go. He spent nearly three years chasing his tail. The defiant royals have long since returned to their home in France, and media interest in the stolen jewels has all but faded to the odd bit of conjecture buried on the back pages. With a heavy heart, D.I. Capstick finally concedes defeat. But the story doesn't end there, not by a long shot. The case of the Windsor Jewels is now handed over to his old comrade on the flying squad, Bob, Mr. Memory Lee. Perhaps he'll have better luck. After all, their mysterious suspect, Johnny the Gent, is also wanted for a whole string of elaborate heists. His very existence is a major blot on the Yard's reputation. Superintendent Bob Lee earned his reputation as Mr. Memory thanks to his ability to recall the names, faces, associates and techniques of most criminals who've crossed his path. Who better then to breathe new life into this already tired and rather embarrassing case? While the detectives in the flying squad and their colleagues in the ghost squad are all technically on the same side, there is a certain rivalry between them. The lads from the flying squad pride themselves on using their detective skills rather than a bunch of informants to catch their crooks. And pretty good they are at it too. The competition for arrest numbers between the two teams is high. While Bob Lee has nothing but respect for the inimitable Jack Capstick, he's happy to get the chance to win one over on him. Putting aside everything Capstick has done, he sets about investigating the whole case from scratch. It's been almost three years since the Edenham Lodge robbery, 
And apart from wild speculation and daft rumour, there's been no sign of the jewels. Other thefts of the same kind have continued, though, so the perpetrator is still at large. D.S. Lee sets about his work with fresh vigour. Like Capstick, he starts by scouting the area around Sunningdale. With Leslie Holmes now out of the picture, that task is fairly short-lived. The majority of residents are high-society ladies and gents, with solid reputations and no need to steal from each other. Mind you, the extremely wealthy are a quirky bunch, and Bob Lee knows better than to exclude the possibility altogether. In fact, right now, he's got one of the local constables in the back room of the yard, going over mugshots, looking for a needle in a haystack. This particular young officer has got a fire in his belly about some well-to-do fellow who apparently pocketed a small wheel of cheese from a local bar and made off without paying for it. Well, Bob Lee had to stifle a quiet chuckle when he heard that. Apparently, this chap owns property all over London, as well as out in Windsor, and travels about in either a Bentley, a Mercedes, or a powerboat. And yet, this junior officer has him pegged as a cheese thief. The local Bobby says the bar owner told him about it like it was some sort of joke, and he isn't even pressing charges. Well, the serious young PC is incensed about that and launches into a full five-minute rant about honour and principles and how the rich think they're above the law and get away with anything. Well, apparently not on his watch. He tells D.S. Lee that he even went to the cheese thief's house, which is where things got interesting. The alleged offender, a man named Barry Redvers Holiday, is known locally as the Squire and seems to be something of a mystery man. In fact, very little is known about him at all other than his apparent wealth. Needless to say, Holiday laughed off the policeman's complaints and sent him on his way, which is what's brought him to Scotland Yard today. D.S. Lee always appreciates a man following his instincts and encourages this young PC to do just that. Smiling to himself, he walks away, leaving the young constable poring over photographs of known thieves, just on the off chance. Lee has no idea what a stroke of luck he's about to have. Bob Lee has only been back at his desk for about half an hour when the young officer comes rushing in, clutching one of the books of mugshots. He plonks it down in front of the surprised detective and taps the page animatedly. That's him. That's the fellow, he says, excitement crackling in his voice. D.S. Lee looks at the face beneath the constable's finger and frowns. You sure? he asks. The constable admits that the man in the mugshot is a lot younger than his squire, Barry Holiday, but he's convinced it's the same man. And it may well be, since the photograph in question was taken over 25 years previously. It just so happens that the face is one that Bob, Mr. Memory Lee, remembers only too well. A petty thief, also named Barry. Barry Fieldson, which he has to admit is quite a coincidence. But the last time D.S. Lee had any dealings with Fieldson was about 25 years ago in a DOS house in South London. Bob Lee was early in his career back then and didn't think much of the scrawny young robbery he'd arrested for some minor offence. In fact, Fieldson appeared to have reformed his criminal ways after that arrest, as he hasn't been pulled for anything since. 
Could the wealthy, cheese-lifting gentleman, now going by the name Barry Redvers Holiday, really be the man Bob Lee last arrested in that squalid flat a quarter of a century ago? And if so, how did he transform his life so dramatically? For the first time since he took over the case, DS Bob Lee gets that tingling feeling that he's about to make a breakthrough. It's just a month into DS Lee's investigation and the detective finds himself following a good lead and having rather a nice time doing it. This morning, with the September sun warming his back and the birds chirping in the trees around him, Bob Lee is sitting on the banks of the River Thames in Sunningdale. He has stationed himself on the opposite side of the river to the ostentatious turreted villa owned by Barry Redvers Holiday. Right now, he's enjoying an afternoon stakeout, complete with a small but delicious picnic. With his binoculars in hand, he's waiting patiently for a glimpse of the squire. His patience is soon rewarded too, as the gates to the property swing open and a luxurious Bentley eases out of the drive. At the wheel, now firmly in Bob Lee's sights, is a gentleman in his early 50s looking immaculate in a tailored Savile Row suit. He couldn't be more dissimilar to the half-starved wraith Bob Lee arrested all those years ago. But thanks to that well-renowned memory of his, D.S. Lee recognizes him immediately. The local copper was right. The squire, or Barry Holiday, or whatever he's calling himself now, is none other than one-time crook Barry Fieldson. As the Bentley pulls away, Bob Lee leaps to his feet. All this time, they've been looking for a gentleman thief, living in the local area, and capable of pulling off the kinds of audacious robberies that have been attributed to the elusive Johnny the Gent. Surely, it's too much of a coincidence that right here, just down the road from the scene of several of those break-ins, is someone who is both a known thief and an apparent gentleman. Someone who appears to have come into substantial wealth since Bob Lee last met him. Could it be that Fieldston has built this lavish lifestyle of his on the back of a very successful criminal career? The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Bob Lee never even rated Fieldson as a small-time burglar back in the day. After all, he picked him up for the smallest of misdemeanors and assumed he'd learned his lesson. Perhaps, instead of reforming his criminal ways, Fieldson had simply got a whole lot better at not being caught. With the wind behind him, Bob Lee hurries back to Scotland Yard. He's finally got himself a suspect in this troublesome case, and it's all thanks to a small piece of cheese. Well, and the instincts of a young police constable. Within a matter of hours, the addresses and movements of the man calling himself Barry Redvers Holiday are under observation. He's already proved he can't stop himself from stealing even the smallest of things. So, if D.S. Lee's instincts are correct, it should only be a matter of time before his detectives catch him in the act. 
frustratingly, the famous cunning that has made old Johnny the Gent so hard to catch or even identify seems to be standing him in good stead again now. He seems to know when he's being followed, and across the course of a three-month operation, he leads detectives on a merry dance all around the capital. He constantly manages to elude his followers, slipping on or off trains and tubes just as the doors are closing, or hopping into taxis to be whisked away out of sight. D.S. Lee, meanwhile, tries to find some evidence tying him to any of the jewel thefts connected to Johnny the Gent. A large proportion of the valuables, including the entire Windsor collection, have not reappeared on the market, so it stands to reason he must be hoarding them somewhere. But where? Not a single safety deposit box is held in his name, despite him visiting several banks in different parts of London. He's made sure to put everything in his wife's name, making it harder for Bob Lee to get a warrant to search them. All he has against his prime suspect at the moment are a host of suspicions, a gut instinct, and a 25-year-old conviction for petty theft. He's going to need a bit more than that to raise a search warrant. On one occasion, after a month of watching him, detectives finally get a tip-off that Johnny the Gent has made a move. Rumour has it that he's going to break into premises in central London. Sensing a chance at last, D.S. Lee gets a team in place ready to catch him in the act. But they are thwarted again when Fieldson and his accomplice, obviously tipped off that they're being watched, drive off at speed on the wrong side of the road with no robbery having taken place. Once again, Johnny the Gents has given them the slip. What does the detective need to do to catch a break? Finally, on the 13th of December, 1949, after weeks of surveillance, the team from Scotland Yard gets the opportunity they've been waiting for. Holiday, wrongly believing he's evaded his followers, is seen entering a bank in Sloan Square with a suspect parcel tucked under his arm. When he leaves the bank, he is empty-handed. D.S. Lee senses his chance. Perhaps because of his formidable reputation as a thief-catcher or his great track record of arrests, he manages to present his suspicions convincingly enough to persuade the court to issue a search warrant. Bob Lee wastes no time executing the warrant and his team searches a safety deposit box at the bank hired in Holiday's wife's name. Inside, they find 10,000 pounds worth of jewels. When these are confiscated and processed, several of them turn out to be the proceeds of previous unsolved crimes, many of which have been attributed to Johnny the Gent. It's enough for DS Bob Lee. He takes a small team and hurries round to Barry Redver's Holiday's London home at Earl's Court Square, where the crook has been staying for the past three months. Finally, he arrests the gentleman thief under the real name of Barry Fieldson. On his arrest, Fieldson chooses to say nothing, neither confirming nor denying his identity or his guilt. When the arresting officers search the house, they find a large quantity of silver and jewellery, evidence of a long and successful career now brought to a sudden and dramatic end. There's just one problem. There is still no sign of the Windsor jewels. On the 14th of December, 1949, Barry Fieldson, alias Barry Redvers Holiday, alias Johnny the Gent, 
appears at West London Magistrates Court, charged with being in possession of jewellery, thought to have been stolen or unlawfully obtained. He applies for bail and is granted it by the magistrate, who admits he has misgivings about doing so. And no wonder, given Fieldson is a career criminal who spent a lifetime hiding from the law. Perhaps the judge felt a glimmer of sympathy for the slim, genteel figure who would otherwise have to spend Christmas in prison. Bail is set at £2,500, and Fieldson is released to await his trial date. Once again, Bob Lee sets up round-the-clock observation of his movements. Privately, he hopes that Fieldson may yet lead them to more stolen goods, especially the all-important Windsor jewels. But on the 18th of December, despite the close surveillance, Fieldson manages to give them the slip again, and this time he doesn't reappear at any of his known addresses. After all this time and effort, and so close to a conviction, has Bob Lee just lost his man again, and with him, all hope of recovering the Royal Gems. Three days before Christmas, on the 22nd of December 1949, D.S. Lee is called to the upmarket Wheatsheaf Hotel at Virginia Water in Surrey. There, in room 23, they find Barry Fieldson sitting upright in his bed, stone dead. Obviously feeling that the net was closing in around him, and not relishing the prospect of spending the rest of his life in prison, the gentleman thief shot himself with a walking stick gun, which now lies by his side. On the bedside table, police find a note which reads, hope I am not causing any trouble. Just like that, the chase is over. Johnny the Gent is no more. After Christmas, with all of Fieldson's properties now thoroughly searched, an exhibition of the recovered valuables is held at Scotland Yard. Owners are invited to come and reclaim their gems. Some of the stones had already been recut and otherwise disposed of, but there's plenty of silverware bearing the crests of the families to whom it had belonged. Sadly, while there is little doubt that Fieldson was responsible for the Ednam Lodge robbery, there is no sign of any part of the Windsor collection in any of the recovered treasure. Perhaps he sold it to a private collector. Perhaps it was hidden and is as yet undiscovered. Perhaps he did the job at the request of someone who simply wanted the gems for themselves, meaning they would never hit the open market. Rumours abound that the jewels were in fact smuggled back into France, where the Duke and Duchess of Windsor live within days of the robbery, worn by four well-dressed women. Police found no substance to these claims. The secrets of where the royal jewels are hidden went to the grave with the gentleman thief who stole them. As for Superintendent Bob Lee of Scotland Yard, at least he could say he finally caught the mysterious and enigmatic master burglar, Johnny the Gent, even if it didn't end exactly as he'd wanted. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's August the 12th, 1966. Two weeks after the jubilation of the World Cup victory over Germany. But the mood of the nation has shifted towards shock and horror as three plain-clothed detectives are brutally slaughtered in a shooting in a quiet street in Shepherd's Bush. When one of the gunmen goes on the run, Detective Chief Superintendent Richard Chitty heads up the biggest manhunt of the century. 
Can the men of Scotland Yard find the culprits and get justice for three of their own? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sean Coleman. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Boone. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCall. Holy.